Well, one thing's for sure. No matter how much you hate the sermon, you're going to leave saying, boy, the singing was good. (laughs) Okay, we have a lot of people in this church uh, of questionable theological abilities who continue to try to argue that cats are going to be in heaven. I'm starting to give uh, some credence to the possibility because of the following true story that was sent to me. Uh, It was from Dwight Nelson, a true story about the pastor of his church. Let me just read it because I can't tell it any better. Uh, The pastor had a kitten that climbed up in his backyard in a tree and was afraid to come down. And the pastor coaxed, offered warm milk, etc., but the kitty would not come down. The tree was not sturdy enough to climb, so the pastor decided that if he tied a rope to his car and drove away so that the tree bent down, he could then reach up and get the kitten. So that's what he did, all the while checking his progress in the car. He figured if he went just a little bit further, the tree would be bent sufficiently for him to reach the kitten. But as he moved the car a little further forward, the rope broke. The tree went boing, and the kitten instantly sailed through the air out of sight. Well, the pastor felt terrible. He walked all over the neighborhood asking people if they'd seen a little kitten. No, nobody had seen a stray kitten. So he prayed, Lord, I just commit this kitten to your keeping, and went on about his business. A few days later, he was at the grocery store and met one of his church members. He happened to look in her shopping cart and was amazed to see cat food. Now, this woman was a cat hater, and everyone knew it, so he asked her, why are you buying cat food when you hate cats so much? She replied, you won't believe this. (laughs) And then told him how her little girl had been begging her for a cat, but she kept refusing. And then a few days before, the child had begged again, so the mom finally told her little girl, well, if God gives you a cat, I'll let you keep it. She told the pastor, I watched my child go out in the yard, get on her knees, and ask God for a cat. And pastor, you won't believe this, but I saw it with my own eyes. A kitten suddenly came flying out of the blue sky with paws outspread and landed right in front of her. I'm not sure if that proves cats will be in heaven or if heaven's just getting rid of cats. (laughs) Most people do not think of animals being from heaven. If you were here Sunday, you know that my view of heaven is quite different than the typical Christian. It seems to me the typical Christian thinks heaven is going to be a bunch of invisible spirits in an invisible place floating around in fog and clouds. Uh, Even less likely in the minds of most people is the idea of anything from heaven coming down to earth. I want you tonight to be prepared to have your minds expanded and some long-held notions challenged. What if we don't go up to heaven? What if heaven comes down to us? Open your Bibles to Revelation 21. And at the end of the vision that John was given, he records these words. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Tonight I want to introduce you to a concept you've heard all your life if you've gone to church, but maybe have never heard a single sermon on. We want to talk about the new earth. Now what is it? Throughout scripture, the promised future for God's people is not a non-earth, but a new earth. Just as man was made from the earth, man was made for the earth. The prophet Isaiah says this in chapter 45, verse 18. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. God's purpose was to live in intimate fellowship with man on a good, curse-free earth. In the beginning, this is how it was. He would come in the cool of the day and take walks with man. Now, we know that man sinned. Theologically, we call it the fall. Everything has been different since. But did the fall cause God to abandon his original purpose? Go back in Genesis and you'll see Eden was never destroyed. What was destroyed was man's ability to live in Eden. And man has been homesick for Eden ever since. And so, you have this longing for the world where men and God are right again... Alluded to all through the prophets. They foretell a world that will once again be what God intends. The prophets predict the ultimate restoration movement. What do they mean by that? Well, Peter tells us, inspired by the Holy Spirit in one of his first sermons in Acts chapter 3, as he preaches Jesus, notice what he says in verse 21. Jesus must remain in heaven... Until the time comes for God to restore everything. As he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Now notice Peter does not say that Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to destroy everything. That's what I grew up believing. I think that's what most Christians believe. But it's not what the Holy Spirit says. Jesus must remain until the time comes for God to restore everything. Do you remember when the rich young ruler leaves Jesus sad? And the disciples say, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things. 
when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You see, there was some basis for the Jews' expectation that when the Messiah came, he would establish an earthly kingdom because there were all these prophecies about the world being set right again. There's some basis for the premillennialist position of the earth being right. Now, I'm not a premillennialist, but I understand how that position uh, was, uh, how it originated. Because you have all this literature in the Bible about the world being set right. About lions laying down with lambs and children playing with the beasts. And the Bible says the prophets foretold all this at the renewal of all things. Let me give you one of the clearest examples in Isaiah 65. Behold, God says, I will create new heavens and a new earth. Now notice how much this sounds like revelation. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. These and other prophecies are too grand to just be talking about the return of exiles. This was the renewal of all things that the prophets foretold. Now what we have traditionally done, especially if you have an amillennial theology that churches of Christ typically have had for years, is you read these prophecies and you spiritualize them. You make them figurative. Well, that doesn't mean what it sounds like. That's just spiritual language. It's funny that a few chapters earlier, when Isaiah predicts the first coming of Jesus in chapter 53, we take all that literal. But when he talks about the second coming of Jesus, we take all that figuratively. We're kind of selective that way. I'm saying to you, the doctrine of the new earth doesn't just rest on speculation on Old Testament prophecy or interpretation of John's apocalyptic vision and revelation it rests on clear apostolic teaching open your bibles to second peter three keep it there now peter is dealing with the tension that the christians are feeling about their preaching jesus will come back and scoffers saying yeah well why hasn't he come yet listen to the argument verse three First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Everything since our fathers died goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And earth and everything in it 
will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. We are to be eagerly anticipating a new earth. The prophets predicted it. John saw a vision of it in the Revelation. And Peter preached it. We're looking forward to a new earth. Well, where's it going to be? Now get ready. Here's where you're going to gulp. You're on it. Keep listening. I don't believe God's original plan was a failed experiment. I believe the next coming of the Lord Jesus will bring about the complete redemption of everything under the curse, including creation. Read with me again in Romans 8, a passage we looked at last Sunday. Paul says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, two questions. Number one, how can creation have hope if annihilation is its future? And second, doesn't pains of childbirth suggest that creation has a future did God make the earth just to be incinerated now because there's a lot of sharp bible students in this crowd I know what some of you are thinking but Peter says everything will be destroyed by fire good question fire cannot annihilate matter it just gives it a new form I don't believe the fire that destroys the earth when Jesus comes back is going to be punitive. It will be purgative. It will cleanse the earth. Now, let me give you some reasons. These are worth writing down. I know this is heavy, but I think it's also going to be very exciting when we get to the end. Here's the first reason I believe this earth is the new earth once it's cleansed by fire. When Paul says... when Uh, Peter, when John talks about a new earth, the Greeks had two words for new. Forgive me for using the Greek argument, but this is one time it matters. They had two words for new. One, neos, meant new in time, brand new. It never existed before. The other, kainos, meant new in quality. When it talks about the new earth, it always uses that second word. New in quality, not new like it's never existed before. When in Revelation 21, 5, the voice from the throne says, I will make everything new, the word is kainos. Now, we use it this way all the time. Ladies, you may say to your friends, come over and see my new kitchen. You don't mean a kitchen that never existed. You mean a kitchen that has been given a completely new look. But a better example is right out of the scripture. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. Guess what word that is? Kainos. When you became a Christian, did you become a human being that has never existed before? Or were you the same person but a totally new person, a new quality of person because of the Holy Spirit's work in you? So when it says a new earth, it doesn't mean one that's never existed before. It means one that's been changed. Let me give you another argument. He's comparing the new earth to what happened in the flood, remember? At the first of chapter 3 of Second Peter, he says, Don't you remember the first time God did this? And notice the word he used. When he destroyed the earth by water. Did the earth disappear? What does it mean he destroyed the earth by water? What it means is he completely ridded the earth of everything evil so it could be repopulated by righteous sons and daughters of God. It's the same word he uses when he says the earth is going to be destroyed by fire. He's going to prepare the earth to be re-inhabited by his sons and daughters. Third argument in Romans 8. Paul compares the redemption of our bodies to the redemption of creation. We talked about this Sunday. God is going to raise up our bodies. It's going to be us, but it's going to be us gloriously new and different. The same groaning that we go through, creation goes through. The same hope we have in resurrection, creation has. He's going to do the same thing for creation that he does for us. For everything under the curse. You know, ironically, our hymnody has taught this a lot longer than we've realized. 300 years ago, Isaac Watts wrote, No more let sin or sorrow reign or thorns infest the ground. He makes his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. This has always been the promise. And then one last argument. I don't believe God is going to let Satan win the battle for the earth. If God must completely destroy his original creation. Then at one level it could be said that devil had the last word. But he doesn't get the last word. God is the ultimate salvage artist. What he did for you and me, he's going to do for his creation. God takes things that sin has polluted and perverted, and God takes it. And not only does God make it new, God makes it better than new. And so, I believe the heaven that now is will one day make a dramatic move to earth. It's interesting, all through the Bible, you have heaven and earth as two separate entities. But you get to Revelation 21, and the dualism ends. And from that point on, heaven and earth are one. And by the way, you've been singing that for years. In fact, you sang it just a few moments ago. Jesus who died will be satisfied. And heaven and earth be one. Now... That's what I think. Is this a salvation doctrine? No. Do you have to be right on this to go to heaven? No. You've got to be right on Jesus. You don't have to be right on what heaven's going to be like. And by the way, when I get to heaven, if it doesn't turn out like I think, I'm not going to say, hey, I, I ain't coming here. 
Not till you fix it so it's like I preached. But this is what I believe heaven will be. And like I said in a minute, I'm going to tell you some reasons why I'm excited about it. Well, how will it be like or unlike the old earth? There is going to be some continuity, but some discontinuity. It will be unlike our current earth in many ways. For one point, you notice what John said in Revelation 21, there was no more sea. Now, I hate to ruin some of your favorite heaven songs about singing by the crystal sea. But go back and read Revelation. The sea is where the evil beast came from. The sea was a symbol for evil to the Hebrew mind. Now, John says, I didn't see any sea. Now, you just give you my opinion. I'm just speculating here. Do you know that right now at this earth, it's only about 10% habitable? When you take away what's covered with sea and what's covered with desert, what's covered with mountain range and what's covered with ice cap, you've only got about 10% of this globe you can live on. I don't believe that's how the original earth looked. I believe the flood changed everything. I believe the new earth is going to be an earth that can hold life all over the globe. There's not going to be any procreation on the new earth. We're going to talk about that next week. Jesus said there's not going to be marriage. That's a difference. In the first earth, we were told to multiply. But in the new earth, there's not going to be any multiplying. And we're going to talk next week about some real difficult questions like, well, if there's not going to be marriage in heaven, then am I still going to have a relationship with my mate? Or what about my kids? Or what about loved ones who've gone on? What about people I love who don't go to heaven? We're going to talk about some of those things. That's next week. But here's the main way it'll be different. The main difference in this earth And the new earth is that the curse will be removed. And we have no idea how huge a difference that is. I'll tell you what some of you are wrestling with right now. Besides the fact that you've always thought heaven was going to be up in clouds somewhere. Here's the big problem. This earth is so fallen. And we are so conditioned to it. And we are so wearied by it. That we equate heaven with escape. I'll finally get away from all this. I don't want to come back to this. I want to be rid of it. See, I don't think we would have any objections if we had ever seen Eden. And one day we will. But the new earth is going to be a lot like this earth in some wonderful ways. Let me show you. It, it, it's, we're going to engage in all of our senses. We're going to delight all of our senses. We're going to feel, taste, smell, hear, touch. Heaven, and I, I got a sermon I'm writing on this one too. Just go ahead and tell you now, folks. Heaven is not going to be one long church service. <laughs> we're going to work, and that's right. You're going to work in heaven. You're going to play. You're going to learn. You're going to spend time with friends. And I got good news, folks. We're going to eat in heaven. We are going to eat. Not so much as a function to survive, but just because God made our bodies to enjoy food, we're going to eat because we enjoy it. And let me give you another thought. Right now, your taste buds pick up four kinds of taste. Salt, sweet, sour, bitter. You think there's only four kinds of taste God can invent? There's all kinds of things God's prepared for us. As I did this study, I was amazed at how often 
They talk about food and talk about heaven. The prophets do over and over, but just stick to the New Testament. Jesus told the church in Ephesus, you're going to get to eat of the tree of life, which has 12 kinds of fruits always blooming. Say the same thing in chapter 22. And he told the church in Revelation 2, 17, that if you're faithful and overcome, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. In Mary, uh, Revelation 19, 9, it says, Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is always saying, like in Matthew 8, 11, they're going to come from east and west, and they're going to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of God. But I think the one that's the neatest of all is that Jesus has a table. And he said, you remember, of the Last Supper, this is my body and this is my blood. And I'm not going to drink it with you again until you sit at my table in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you something. All good parties have good food. And there's going to be lots of parties in heaven. So heaven's going to be fun. And I tell you what else. There will be animals in heaven. Just as the prophets announced, when God created this perfect world for us to live in, for him to fellowship with, one of the delights he put in this world for us to love and take care of was animals. God seems to have a special affection for animal life. You notice in the Genesis account, he didn't ask Adam to name the plants. He did ask Adam to name the animals. He had Noah save the animals. He cares for the welfare of animals. Go back to the Ten Commandments. You know, on the Sabbath day, it wasn't just men that were supposed to rest. He said, you make sure that the animals get to rest too. Do you remember in the end of Jonah? When Jonah's throwing a pity party for himself. And God says, that city's got 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from the left. And a whole lot of cattle. I I never thought of, why'd you add that, God? But he's basically saying, Noah. Should I destroy all those people and all those cows just because you're in a bad mood? (laughs) The Bible even commands animals to praise God. Psalm 148, Psalm 150, verse 6 says, Everything that has breath, give praise to God. I believe there are going to be animals in heaven. I think it will include extinct species we've never seen. And it might include new life forms we've never even imagined. I'm still not sure about cats. (laughs) But I am sure of this. God has both the power and the desire to prepare for us the perfect home. Now, when will the new earth appear? Well, we already read it. Peter says clearly in chapter 3 of the second letter, the appearance of the new earth will come with the second coming of Jesus. Now, this raises some very interesting questions about the intermediate state that we will talk about in a future sermon. If the new earth hasn't come, then where do people who go to heaven now go? What is that heaven like? I'll try to deal with that a little bit later. Now, again, a lot of good Bible students here, and some of you are thinking, now, wait a second, 1 Thessalonians 4 says that we're going to be raised and we're going to meet Jesus in the air when he comes back. Yes, we are. The purpose of the rapture is to renew the now empty earth with cleansing fire. We will meet Jesus in the air. The earth will be purged with fire. It will be liberated from the curse. Not by being destroyed, but by being resurrected. 
And then Jesus' victory will be revealed in its totality as both man and earth are reconciled to heaven. And Satan's defeat will be complete because he's going to be exiled to hell as a deposed dictator. And a new government's going to be set up. So no wonder, Peter says, we are looking forward to this. And then finally, why is the new earth important? Here's where I get excited. Number one, I believe it's an important doctrine to recover because it's a declaration of victory. The consummation of the kingdom of God will not be the celebration of a partial triumph. I hope what these last two sermons have done is greatly expand in your understanding the breadth and the depth of the victory of Jesus. He did not go to the cross just to redeem spirits, to live in a spirit world. He came to redeem everything the curse had corrupted. Scripture says, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven... By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. As I've come to a a clearer understanding these last weeks and months of the new earth. My awe and wonder at what Jesus did has only increased. His victory is that complete. For as the curse is found, God will be proclaimed the victor. A second reason I think it's important is that. It's a motivation to purity. As Peter talked about the second coming of Jesus and the arrival of the new heaven and the new earth, he said, remember what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Now let me tell you, stick with me here. It's where it gets real practical. One of the reasons we have such an inadequate commitment to sanctification is because we have such an inadequate view of heaven. We grow up thinking heaven is a bunch of spirits in one long church service plucking harps. And that is not enough motivation to keep a man from looking at internet pornography at night. Now Peter says, when you figure out what's really coming and what God is really doing, you've got a reason to stay holy. In fact, he says in verse 13, we are looking forward to the new heaven and new earth So now look at verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. And I'll just tell you right now, if you're dabbling in ungodliness and unholiness and you are continuing a path that you know is disobedient to God... One of your problems is you've got too small a view of heaven. The new earth is important. It gives us motivation to purity. And one last thought. I believe it's an invitation for company. What do I mean? Okay. Most of us think the whole goal of God is salvation. Wrong. Salvation is a means to the end. God's goal 
was always fellowship. God has always wanted to dwell with his children. That's the go. Look again at verse 3 that we read earlier. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God, notice, is with men. And he will live with them. You think it's going to say, and they will live with him. No. He will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And will be their God. I like the way that same verse reads from the message. I heard a voice thunder from the throne. Look, look. God has moved into the neighborhood. Making his home. With men and women. See ultimately. Ultimately. And you know what? I'm just going to spare you some time. If you have a problem with this. Don't write me an email tomorrow. (laughs) Because ultimately. Heaven's not about where or what. But who. You and I will live with God. And so let me close with another reading. This is a devotional that uh, some of you probably saw on the internet recently. Written by Max Licado called The Guest of the Maestro. What happens when a dog interrupts a concert? To answer that, come with me to a spring night in Lawrence, Kansas. The conductor, dressed in tail, strides onto the stage, springs onto the podium and gestures for the orchestra to rise... The musicians take their seats, the maestro takes his position, and the audience holds its breath. Enter stage right, the dog. A brown, generic Kansas dog. Not a mean dog, not a mad dog, just a curious dog. At home in the splendor, roaming through the meadow of music, he visited the woodwinds, turned his head at the trumpet, stepped between the flutists, and stopped by the side of the conductor. The musicians laughed, the audience laughed. The dog looked up at the conductor and panted, and the conductor lowered his baton. He stepped off the podium and scratched the dog behind the ears. The maestro spoke to the dog. He spoke in German, but the dog seemed to understand. The two visited for a few seconds before the maestro took his new friend by the collar and led him off the stage. Now, can you find you and me in this picture? I can. Just call us Fido and consider God the maestro. And envision the moment when we will walk onto his stage. We don't deserve it. We'll not have earned it. The music will be like none we've ever heard. We'll stroll among the angels and listen as they sing. We'll walk next to the maestro, stand by his side and worship as he leads. And he too will welcome and he too will speak. But he will not lead us away. He will invite us to remain forever. His guest on his stage. When it's all said and done, here's the good news. You and I will live with God. Let's bow our heads. Father, for this promise, we give you unending praise. We look forward, as Peter says, to the new heaven and the new earth. Help us to look even more forward to it. Help us to look so forward to it, God, that we don't become discouraged 
in a sin-cursed world. Help us to look so forward to it, God, that we don't get caught up in sin and perversion and iniquity. Help us to look so forward to it, God, that even now we seek every opportunity we can to fellowship with you. Help us to practice now what we'll enjoy forever. Oh, God. We do look forward. And we look back. And we see a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And we know that everything you've promised is guaranteed. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing glorify your name in all the earth. I believe it's more than just a song. I believe it is a prayer that one day will be absolutely and completely fulfilled. We're going to sing it now. If you need prayer, go to 109. If you want to be baptized, come to the front. Stand, please.